0: Terry certainly started when, um, when he awakened from his accident and uh, we were told a completely different thing medically from how things did turn out. And I realized one of his time frames from when he was sitting up to where he could, for instance, the time frame he had to be sitting up and after eating, for instance, and then he could lay back down and his, one of his first things that he was zeroing in on was the clock and I realized, oh my gosh, he's understanding verbiage and he would then watch the clock for himself. Just phenomenal. And before he got to Craig, it was only thumbs up and thumbs down, but he was able to do that. And so here we are over two years later. He can certainly carry on a conversation.
1: Welcome back to Cadence, the podcast where we explore what music can tell us about the mind. I'm Indre Viscontis. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist and an opera singer, and this is my passion project. This season, we're telling the stories of people whose lives have been immeasurably improved by music. And we're asking the question, can music be medicine? In this episode, we meet a patient named Terry who was in a devastating car accident a couple years ago when he was in his early 20s. The accident left him with profound damage to his left hemisphere, impairing his ability to speak. Rewiring the brain so that speech is possible again is one of the ways in which music therapy has been particularly effective. So in this episode, we're going to hear about music therapy in general and then we'll talk to Terry's music therapist Sarah Thompson who's been working with him over the last couple of years to help him regain his ability to speak and finally we'll hear from Terry Terry is rewiring his brain with music at the top of the episode we heard from his mother Susan describing the journey that he's been on over the last few years but now let's turn to Peggy Cotting a music therapy professor at the Berkeley College of Music to help us understand how music therapy can be helpful in these settings, and what the goals are for music therapists. Tell me a little bit about your journey into music therapy, what got you thinking about using music as a therapeutic tool, and then how
2: you got to where you are. Well, as most music therapists come to music therapy, it is through the music door, and sometimes often through an experience that they've had, either in a Uh, with a family member, someone who has an ability challenge or through a personal experience. Mine was definitely through a personal experience uh, as a young child. As a young child, I lost my family. I lost my parents and um, was not very vocal as a child. And so someone pushed a piano in front of me, and uh, it became really a voice for me and uh, has continued to be that in the most positive of ways. As for many people who experience trauma, uh, the, and as research tells us as well, trauma is very deep-seated, and um, words very often, language in the sense that we know it, is not adequate for expression, and so uh, very often either art or music, because it, it doesn't necessarily rely on words, um, music can be a way to, to find um, expression. And for me, it was. I, I really didn't have language in the sense that we, we talk about it. And so I played piano. And my, my teacher was, um, interestingly enough, a Holocaust survivor. A master teacher and a master pianist, and uh, so we sort of moved through our journey together, um, and it was a beautiful one.
1: What is the difference between music therapy and, say, playing music in a hospital setting?
2: Really great question, because there are many people who go into the hospital to play uh, for the pleasure and the um, relaxation of of patients. Music therapists are trained. Uh, and an undergraduate or at a graduate level to use music clinically um, to improve quality of life, but in a very directed way. There is a standard of care that begins with assessment of the patient or the client in very specific ways, followed by the development of a treatment plan, and then development of a treatment protocol that then is implemented and there is assessment and evaluation followed by termination of treatment. That falls more in line with medical standard of care, or it could also be in an educational setting where, again, the standard of care would involve something similar to that, or in community mental health, same kind of thing. It The music therapy involves the therapy component as well as the, the very direct musical training.
1: So I know that some aspects of music therapy can have very measurable results. So say, for example, language acquisition or, you know, sort of treatment of specific conditions. But are there other ways in which the sort of quality of life improvements can be measured after music therapy or during during music therapy treatment?
2: We, as music therapists look at the outcomes for music therapists both in observable, measurable ways and we're trained in that uh, capacity and also as musicians are aware that some of the outcomes in terms of quality of life are very subjective. And the facility where we work and the means of payment sometimes determines how we measure outcomes. For example, insurance companies are very much interested in observable, measurable outcomes, and yet there are also more qualitative kinds of outcomes as well, Um, narrative information or um, outcomes related to uh, meaning in life, Um, and, you know, those are, are more personal and not necessarily reported to insurance companies.
1: Peggy Cotting is an expert in music therapy, and she trains the new generation of music therapists at the Berklee College of Music. But Sarah Thompson is the one who's been working with Terry. Sarah is a music therapist in Colorado, and in particular, she works at Craig Hospital, which is where Terry's rehabilitation began.
3: I'm a board-certified music therapist, and I've been in clinical practice for about 14 years now. And for the past seven and a half years, I've been doing some work at Craig Hospital which is a top 10 rehabilitation hospital that specializes in working with people who've had either spinal cord injuries, brain injuries or strokes. And really my job there is to help patients reach their goals. And that's I know it sounds very broad, but um we know a lot about music and we know that there's certain things that music can be really helpful with. So I might be helping someone to rehabilitate their walking. I might be helping a musician with a spinal cord injury figure out how they can return to playing their instrument after getting a spinal cord injury. I might be trying to help someone regain their ability to speak. So there's just a wide range of things that I'm working on, but music is a therapeutic medium. Remember that Terry
1: has a problem producing words, especially if he's a little bit nervous. But that doesn't mean that the rest of his cognitive abilities are as impaired as it seems. He can understand and he could interact. And in fact, if you were with him in a room, you would notice just how active his brain is. Here's Sarah talking to Terry about things he used to do before his accident.
3: Terry, were you working? Yes. Okay. And what else were you doing? Anything?
4: Tools and...
3: Were you a mechanic?
4: Yeah. Well, yes and no
3: something with tools. Yeah. Okay. And were you you were living in Colorado? Yeah. Okay. Did you do anything else outside of work? Climbing. Climbing. Rock climbing? Yeah. Okay. Cool. And
4: guitars.
3: You played some guitar a little yeah. bit. Yeah. A little bit.
4: Yeah. Mhm. Um pool and um, playing pool, you mean? Yeah. Okay. And is that it? Yeah.
3: Okay,
1: cool. Yeah. Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about Terry's condition and
3: what happened? Sure. So Terry was in an accident. Driving. Driving car accident mm-hmm. and got a brain injury. And then also after that had a stroke. So he kind of hit, got hit with a double whammy. Yeah. And so what you're kind of hearing, he's just getting a few words out here, and I think he's a little nervous, so yeah, it's I worse. Know. So it's a little <laughs> worse than usual, but um, it's that's the aphasia and the apraxia coming out. So aphasia is the type of aphasia that Terry has. There's mo- many types, but um, he's having trouble expressing himself, so expressive aphasia. And um, then the apraxia is sort of a Difficulty with motor planning around words, although that's gotten so much better, (laughs) Terry. So he had this accident, and he ended up at Craig Hospital, and that's where I met Terry. And um, his... All
4: sides, yeah.
3: Yeah, your right side. Mm -hmm. um,
4: Boom.
3: Yeah. Yeah. He had a stroke on the left side of his brain, so the right side of his body has difficulty moving. Mm -hmm. And his speech therapist thought... I could possibly help him. So she and the doctor made the referral, and I came in to meet Terry. So it's
1: obvious that Terry still has a long way to go before he can completely recover his speech. For most of us, especially those of us who are right-handed, speech production is located in the left hemisphere, towards the front of the brain. But language is such a complex thing that we have many regions that we recruit in order to produce and comprehend speech. In patients who have left hemisphere damage, It can be devastating because they lose their ability to speak. And sometimes in these patients, you can start to train the right hemisphere, the analogous regions on the right side of the brain, to take over some of those functions. In particular, there's a fiber tract between the part of the brain in the left hemisphere that lets us comprehend what people are saying and the part of the brain that lets us produce a response. So the comprehension region is called Wernicke's area and the production region is called Broca's area. And joining these two regions is a tract of fibers called the arcuate fasciculus. It turns out that with a particular kind of music therapy, we sometimes see a growth in fibers in the arcuate fasciculus in the right hemisphere, which for most of us who don't have speech localized on the right side, but rather on the left, the arcuate fasciculus on the right is really pretty small. So over time, with therapy, patients like Terry can start to recruit their right hemisphere to take over some of the functions of their damaged left hemisphere. But it's painstaking work, and depending on where the damage is and how extensive it is, it doesn't always work for all patients. Here's Susan, Terry's mom, talking about the journey that he has been taking in order to recover his speech.
0: Again, in those early days of therapy, And for him to be able to utter any other words was just phenomenal. My heart just was soaring. I still get emotional. Subsequently, (laughs) fast forward months later, uh, the radio will be on either in Terry's room or he'll turn on the radio in the car. And there he is. He's just singing along. Mm -hmm. And I just... It, it, it's just fabulous what all of a sudden resonates. He's a huge fan of Billy Joel, mm-hmm. so that that'll that'll be there, and boom, he'll just oh, you know, there come the lyrics. <laughs> and uh, I, I would say he gets definitely does get frustrated. We all do. I think one thing initially, just being out at a restaurant, indeed, trying to order quote fast food for him to have to point. You don't have a menu right in front of you. It's all on boards behind. So eventually he got to the point where he would uh, show me the number, like um, that meal number four, for instance, with the number of fingers he was holding up. So it was really just working from there, saying, okay, that's what we're after. I had that confirmed. I had to order for him. But then eventually I realized, oh, no, we can use this as a learning tool as well. Saying, okay, well, what number is that? And, mm-hmm. and verbalizing. But I- every day, it, th- there are, there's just words that pop up, and uh, certainly wasn't expecting.
1: Tell me a little bit what it's like to notice him, or, or, or you know, like, I love this idea of him sort of singing along to the radio. It must tell me what
0: that's like. Uh, it's, uh, it's surprising, mm-hmm. always surprising, because you just never know what's going to resonate with him in his memory.
1: I wanted to get a deeper understanding of how Sarah and Terry worked together and how the therapy started out. So left-sided I- um, injury and stroke. Mm-hmm. How long ago did this happen?
4: Two years.
1: Two years. Okay. Yeah. So Sarah, you were at the hospital working as a music therapist. Of course, Terry had a speech therapist um, mm-hmm. working with him. Can you tell us a little bit about What the speech therapist was doing and why he or she might have thought that music would be beneficial.
3: Well, I think it's fairly common knowledge that folks with expressive aphasia do quite well with music. So she knew that at that point, goals were getting one word out. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. It was really you were so frustrated. Yeah. I remember you being really tearful, actually. So we were trying to, in any way that we possibly could, get him to say a single word because you would just, uh, as is typical with folks with aphasia, you had, uh, I'm trying to remember what your word was at that time, you had sort of one word that was your go-to that you used for everything. Um, Was it okay, probably?
4: Okay, yes. (laughs) No, that was it. Yeah, those three <laughs> words were probably it. So we
3: were trying to stimulate the speech therapist was trying to stimulate speech through, you know, typical speech therapy techniques. And she's very creative. So she was trying all kinds of things with you. Mm-hmm. Um, And she knew that Terry really liked music. And I think, especially being at a, a younger age, that can be, I think people tend to think of that being more of a fit because, Late teens, early 20s tends to be a time where music's very important in our lives Mm -hmm. and sort of a big part of our identity. So she was thinking of that. She knew it was helpful for aphasia and knew that Terry loved music, had played a little bit of music background, musical background. And so that's how that came up.
1: You know, Terry, something that I've always wondered about in individuals who have this kind of expressive aphasia you are obviously aware that there is something that um, you want to do, but you know you can't. And yeah. even if you only have a few words, you know, did you try to use those words to express meaning beyond them? Um, I mean, I'm kind of thinking sometimes of how the character Hodor in Game of Thrones, if you're familiar with that show is shown to he also only has one word and he uses the hit that word it turns out it's the name that that they've given him as uh, and that's right. why they call him Hodor he uses right. that word okay. to express different feelings so even though he's only using one word you can tell whether he's excited or sad or angry or frustrated did you ever find yourself using those words in a way to express some kind of emotion that goes beyond just what the word means
4: Yes. All types of them. Um,
3: The other thing you would say, Terry, I'm remembering is, oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so it could be, oh, man, or oh, man. man. They're all different ways of saying it. Uh, (laughs) Depending on, yeah, Terry (laughs) is very expressive with his facial expressions and his tone of voice. in music therapy, we really break down music into various elements of music. And depending on the technique that we're using, different elements become more important. So for example, with someone who has aphasia and apraxia, we want to try and stimulate like automatic kind of words. So that's why he could say, oh man, or some of these phrases, because they were just automatic to him. But but you know, words that if we said, say, you know, chair, that was a lot harder because it's not an automatic kind of word. So the way that we would do that through music is that we try and use songs that are overlearned. So that are songs that Terry knows so well that he doesn't <laughs> even really have to think about it. He just, you know, it's like you know, the song comes on, you're singing to it without realizing it kind yeah. of thing. So for that, the element of familiarity is very, very important. It doesn't really matter what style of music it is, as long as it has words. But the element of familiarity is so important. And so that very first time I met him, I knew that I needed to know, figure out his music preference, right? And it becomes a little tricky when Terry can't tell me all of his (laughs) music preference. So we did a little bit of, we did some writing. You were doing some reading of single words at that time. So I would write like rock on a whiteboard or, you know, country. And then through his gestures, his facial expressions, he would help kind of put us into a genre of music. And then from there, it was sort of a similar process to narrow down. And we started actually pulling up recordings of music. And um, one that we pulled just to see, you know, trying to figure out what music he liked because he wasn't able to tell us. So we were pulling up recordings of music and we pulled up ACDC. dc <laughs> Right?
4: Yeah.
3: And uh, we put that on. And so I kind of sang some of it with you, and I would prompt you at certain times. And you started, Uh that's when you first started to get your first words outside of, you know, yes, no. And uh, oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. And it was, he had a huge grin on his face because I think there's an element of success there like, oh, I just accessed words. Other than the ones I've been stuck on, <laughs> am I saying yes. that correctly? Yes. Yeah. So, so ACDC was your first one. <laughs> yeah. So some of the words to the song, I think we did. You shook me all night long. Yeah. Uh huh. And so, for example, the song would be added. Um, you shook me all, all night. night long, and then he would only fill in the last word, long. <laughs> you know. Um, so we started with the the nice thing about using music for for stimulating that automatic speech is you know you can start with having someone fill in the last word of the phrase like all night and they fill in long yeah and then you kind of back it up from there so Mm. and then i may be saying you shook me and you sang all
4: all night long and then he would say
3: all three words and then we kind of expand it out and um depends on the person some people can sing the whole song right off the bat um and that can be pretty dramatic but Um, But if not, you can also kind of back it out that way. So that was a very cool moment. (laughs) I remember that.
1: So ACDC seemed to work in terms of getting some of your first words out beyond the few that remained to you after the accident. How else did the music therapy progress?
3: We did a couple different things. We did stimulating some of those automatic kind of words through songs. And then we also did melodic intonation therapy. So... One of the first phrases we did was "My name, name is Terry." Terry. Mm-hmm. Yes, okay. So with uh, tapping Oof. the left hand and um, singing the phrases that we wanted you to be able to say, yeah. we went through the whole process of doing some of those phrases.
1: Well, let, well let's um, yeah, let's let's pause on that for a second and take a deep dive because that seems very different from say you know singing a well learned you know, uh, like the ACDC song or Happy Birthday, something that you've sung, you know, many, many, many times, that seems like a different process from repeating something that has a melody, but that's novel.
3: How do you think that works? Yeah. It is. It is very different. So, and melodic intonation therapy has been around since the 1970s. And I think, yeah, (laughs) at its core, the basis really is, if I can pull from, you know, music perception research is that melody tends to come more from the right hemisphere for folks and so using putting a melody to words but there is a learning process there's a whole protocol to melodic intonation therapy and it is novel learning and so they don't get it Um, folks don't typically sing it 100% accurately necessarily the first time the way that they yeah might be more (laughs) you remember that
4: yeah
3: you might be more likely to sing it 100 words that are in overlearned songs might come out more accurately but melodic intonation therapy there is a process where you're modeling for them and then especially with folks with apraxia you want them to watch your mouth because that's very helpful yeah so i present the phrase then terry and terry just listens right yeah um, so let's just do. You want to try like a sample of how we did? Yeah, My name please. is Terry. Okay, okay. So we would start with I just kind of present it. Um, so I'm I'm holding his left hand and tapping it on his <laughs> leg. Um, so it starts with hmm
4: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
3: mm-hmm. 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 then hmm oh. listens. Mm-hmm. My name mm-hmm. is Terry. My name, my name is Terry. And then he joins me, which obviously he's getting it very quickly because he's beyond this. <laughs> but uh, we're doing it as if it was, you know, a year and a half ago, probably. And then we, I would fade out and we would sort of echo each other. So my name is Terry.
4: My name is Terry.
3: Mm-hmm. And then we fade that out. Um, try it one more time on your own.
4: My name is Terry. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. And then we would try to put him in a situation where he had to actually use that phrase. So <laughs> grab someone from the hallway and say, hey, this is Kathy. Tell, him, tell her your name. And then you would say.
4: Terry Ingdahl. Yeah, but. Mm-hmm. My name is Terry Ingdahl. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah.
3: Good. Wow. So that's kind of the progression that you go through in doing that. And so, Terry, can you tell us,
1: do you use, like, do you think about the melody when you're about to say that phrase or does it just become oh, wow. more like speech? Like, do you just just speech. do it and it just
3: works?
4: Speech and I don't know.
3: Do you think about the melody you think?
4: No. You just I do I don't it. know.
3: Never thought about it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So, Terry, are there things that you want to say on a regular basis that you haven't been able to, you know, find the right melody for or, you know, that you guys haven't worked on yet? Um, Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm asking is, how do you pick what phrases you're going to
3: work on in a therapy session? So, um, I think with (laughs) And this is just my professional clinical opinion. I think with melodic intonation therapy, you're not going to train every phrase that every that a person's going to use. And for Terry, all the MIT phrases he's gotten so good at, he doesn't really need, I think he's sort of passed it in a way, um, in the way that it's melodic intonation therapy is traditionally thought of. Um, so we, you know, the last time that we worked together in a therapy setting, we weren't using melodic intonation therapy we're using some other techniques where we are working on more novel phrases for example um, I would ask you things like what's your favorite food and then you would say my my
4: favorite um, food is
3: is it vegetables
4: vegetables yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow.
3: You know, <sighs> kudos he, to your mother <laughs> or father, whoever it was that taught you to eat vegetables. His, his his mother's here in the studio. She's got a big smile because <laughs> since his that was one, that's one change from my understanding since his accident is that he now hates sweets and loves vegetables.
1: <laughs> wow. So that is fascinating. I mean, yeah. you know, <laughs> is that is that? Do you think that's related to? I mean, does do things taste different to you now, Terry? Um, is that related? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How can you tell us a little bit about like what does sweet taste like versus vegetables? What what what's different?
4: Vegetables, um, that's it.
3: That's what you like. <laughs> yeah. And you, well, you like like steak, don't you? Yeah. Oh and yeah. And salad. And salad. Salads. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you like, but pretty, pretty healthy diet nowadays. You don't like any, because when we would talk about things like that, you know, I might say my favorite food's chocolate, and Terry would go,
4: "Yeah, you Uh know." (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, but no.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's really interesting,
1: Um, Terry. What do you find uh, most frustrating now that you? I mean, I mean, this, this might be hard for you to express, but. Do you still find yourself getting frustrated?
4: Ooh. Speaking words are difficult. Um That's it. I mean,
3: what what about your
4: hand? Yeah. Yes. I know Eating you're and well, working on it.
1: So Sarah, I wanted to ask you a little bit about if we can talk just, you know, for a couple minutes about the mechanisms in terms of Terry's injury and sort of the brain regions involved. Are we looking at music therapy as a method by which we can help rewire the brain and, you know, target some of the, you know, neuroplasticity and or are we looking at you know, coming to the problem from a different direction. So, for example, uh, maybe language production won't get completely relocated into the right hemisphere, but maybe we can use some aspects of right hemisphere function to get back at, you know, to solve the problem in a different way.
3: Right. So I guess perhaps a little bit of both. So I think initially, one of the things that has driven music therapy techniques, I guess you will, is is looking at situations where non-musical things are damaged, but music somehow tends to remain intact. So your your person with very advanced Alzheimer's, you know, you see this again and again, that they cannot remember the names of the their closest loved ones. But if you start singing a familiar song with them, they can sing every word. And so... There's all these—and for example, with aphasia, you know, I've had patients who can literally get one word out speaking but can sing entire songs. And so these situations where music is left, music is there, so there's an in for us um, to get in and do some work. And we know now, like for example, with with, um, Alzheimer's, that some of the areas of the brain that do musical memory are some of the last to deteriorate with dementia and Alzheimer's. So we know— more of the scientific reason why those things happen for many years prior to all the neuroscience research. It was just anecdotes. Oh, these are cool anecdotes. You know, (laughs) maybe this is music's a cool thing. And now we understand more about why it happens. And I think in general, for rehabilitation context, we're looking at it from a perspective of using what's there, but creating some neuroplasticity. So for example, working with Terry, Yes, he was able to get some more words out with music, but what we saw happen is that his words, even words we hadn't practiced, started coming out more, more frequently. So it wasn't just he could only sing words that he had sung in ACDC songs. It was other words were spontaneously coming out. So it seems to be making some reconnections for people because the families will, you know, we only see him in therapy, but we'll talk to families or we'll watch people in the hallways and you will see these other phrases come out that you've never used so it's not purely a training effect it's also seems to be a neuroplasticity effect rhythm is so important for any kind of motor movement and that can include oral motor movements as well so rhythm we know from like basic studies of rhythm perception that that our, our muscles and our nerves um, respond to the use of rhythm, and they actually start anticipating when the next beat is coming. Because rhythm is just an auditory pattern, essentially. And mm-hmm. I'm talking about basic rhythms. I'm not talking about, you know, 16th notes and then an 8th <laughs> note. and then a qu- I'm not talking like that. Just a basic beat, quarter note type beat, um, that our body perceives that, and then our body starts to anticipate when the next um, beat is going to be. And that actually creates like a feed forward type of mechanism. So our body is primed and ready to move. Um, So with like at Craig Hospital, we have a lot of people who've had brain injuries who have trouble with initiation of movement. And we use a ton of rhythm with them and we see just so much success. And I think that's one of the areas where we don't have a lot of clinical research, but we have a lot of basic research, which gives us a hint as to why that might be happening. I asked Susan
1: what it was like to see her son in such a devastating condition and then slowly, slowly begin to rehabilitate. Because after all, rewiring the
0: brain takes a lot of time and a lot of effort on Terry's part. Terry certainly started when um, when he awakened from his accident and uh, we were told a completely different thing medically from how things did turn out. And I realized one of his time frames from when he was sitting up to where he could, for instance, the time frame he had to be sitting up and after eating, for instance, and then he could lay back down. And his one of his first things that he was zeroing in on was the clock. And I realized, oh my gosh, he's understanding verbiage. And he would then watch the clock for himself. It just phenomenal. And before he got to Craig, it was only thumbs up and thumbs down, but he was able to do that. And so here we are over two years later. He can certainly carry on a conversation if, again, as Sarah pointed out, if he's comfortable with someone or the environment and uh, not under a microscope, not asking, you know, put on the <laughs> stage, per se, mm-hmm. and uh, and then, my goodness, yes, he can carry on quite a conversation.
1: <laughs> and Susan or Sarah, either of you, feel free to answer this question, but do you have you ever observed him looking as if he's sort of relieved of frustration when he's singing along to a song that you wouldn't see when he's, you know, trying to get words out in speech.
0: Oh, I I would definitely say there's always triumph there. He definitely enjoys music in all facets and if he can sing along, there's great pride in that. One of the things I
1: love about hearing the stories from patients is how much we can all learn about our own behavior from listening to their experiences. And so I wasn't surprised, but I was also delighted when Susan, Terry's mom, schooled me on how I converse with Terry and how I could do it better.
0: Earlier in your dialogue with Terry, you were asking uh, two portions to a question. So with aphasia individuals, you have to be more specific asking one question at a time and waiting for that response. Then you can go to the next question. I would say our common societal dialogue is bam, bam, bam. Mm -hmm. Uh, We will enter three different thoughts or three different options within one given statement. With aphasia and apraxia, you have to back way off and only address one issue, one question at a time.
3: Mm -hmm. Like when Terry says yes and no, then (laughs) you can get a closed-ended question here, you know, and then you... Kind of find things out that way, one question at a time. Right. You've gotten very good at that, Susan. <laughs> <laughs> Practice <Nice laughs> It's amazing what we learn when we have to, right, right, Terry? Yes.
1: So can we eavesdrop a little bit into a conversation between you, Susan, and Terry? Can you, can you demonstrate what would have been a better way for me to sort of ask him questions?
4: How are you?
3: <laughs> Talk to
0: your...
4: your oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm Mom. fine today. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs>
0: How are you today, Terry? Good. Wonderful. He's stretching now, so yes. are you comfortable? Yes. All <laughs> right. And uh, later on today, we plan to go see some family. Yes. Are you looking forward to that? Yes. Do you remember who we are visiting? Mona. And how is she, uh, What would that person be to you? Is she an aunt? No. Is she a grandmother? Yes. Yes. So we are going to visit Moner, which is yeah. Terry's nickname for his grandmother. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, see, we still have uh, what on the agenda today? We still have some therapies to do, don't yeah. we? Yeah. Can you tell me what kind of therapy, what are we doing today? What is, what's going to be?
4: Exercise. In- um, okay. Stress. Stretching, yeah.
0: Stretching, and. Stimulus stimulation, right?
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Right, and
3: um, what about Terry? I wonder if you like to talk about building with Legos.
4: Ah, uh, yes, hard. What,
3: what, what yeah. are you doing with that?
4: Um, um, oof. stuff. I mean,
0: yes, he, he he initially <laughs> did quite a bit of Lego. Building sets. Uh-huh. I was, It was fascinating to watch him be able to turn page after page after page and do all the correct placement of those bricks. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he referenced hard, he was explaining he likes the
3: most challenging sets at this yeah. point. Uh, sets that I didn't know existed. I was only familiar <laughs> with, like, kid Legos, but yeah. they are very, very advanced Lego sets, and you have to read all the instructions. And Yeah. 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 Do you have a favorite thing that you've built with Legos?
4: Motorcycles. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Darn. Oh, you like... T- Working on it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that is one of
0: Terry's goals, is to be able to perhaps one day <laughs> rot- drive, ride a motorcycle. Again. Yeah. But we also know that's very dangerous.
4: <laughs> I know. It's slow. And
0: slow. I know. <laughs>
4: I, I know. Slow. Mm-hmm. Yes. Did your, is, is that how the
1: accident happened? Was it with, when you were on a motorcycle, or was it in
0: a car? No. It was in a car. car.
3: <laughs>
0: yes. yes, he was driving a car. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yes, it was a left frontal lobe uh, brain injury, and then subsequently a severe left hemispheric
3: stroke. Mm-hmm. Terry and I had talked about um, possibly singing a song. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Together, just to give you a sense of... Um, This is sort of a a replay, if you will. About a year ago, um, we, a little over a year ago, we um, were asked to sing for like a fundraising event and they asked to sing the national anthem. And um, if you've worked for, especially for people who knew Terry and worked with him at the phase where he couldn't get one word out and was really tearful. And um, it was just so cool to see him do that because that's actually a very difficult song to sing. Yeah. It has not only <laughs> musically, but then it has some um tricky words in there. So we had talked about maybe doing some of that for you. Okay. Yeah. Please. Does that work for you? Sounds okay. great.
4: Hum hum hum. <laughs> <laughs> hum, hum, hum. He's warming up. I'm
3: going to move my microphone a little bit away. <laughs> so let's start
4: to the night that our flag was still there Oh say does that star-spangled banner yet wave O'er the land of the free and the home the Way
3: to go, Terry.
1: The national anthem is not an easy song to sing, as anyone who has tried to sing it in front of other people knows. And it is remarkable how much of the ability to sing Terry has retained, even as his speech has been devastated. Over time, I hope that he recovers speech so that even in situations in which he is a little nervous, or when the interviewer doesn't know how to ask the right questions, he can thrive. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Cadence. You can find us online at theensembleproject.com Cadence, at Facebook slash Cadence Podcast, and on Twitter, at CadencePodcast. You can also get in touch with us at cadencemind at gmail.com. And you can support us at Patreon.com slash Cadence You can also support us by going to wherever it is that you get your podcasts and leaving us a review. These reviews really help us grow an audience, which is what we need in order to thrive and continue making episodes. Cadence is produced by Adam Isaac and me, Indre Viscontis. I also created and write the show. Additional production help is from Scott Lowry. The music in this episode was provided for us by acclaimed New Zealand composer Rian Sheehan check him out at RianSheehan.com. You can find me on Twitter at indrevis. And this season of Cadence is generously supported by the Germanicos Foundation. Join us in a few weeks for our next episode in which we continue our exploration into what music tells us about the mind.